Let me change that first. This morning we have the unique privilege of looking at Paul's own ministry through Paul's own words. We get to examine his motives and his tasks and his work and even his burdens according to how he describes it. And so we see Paul's ministry for the Lord from his own perspective. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, for a message I have called Seven Characteristics of a Ministry of Reconciliation. Um, And this morning we're only going to address the first two of those and finish the rest next week. Um, As always, I want to invite those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 21, where we were last week. The word of God reads, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make excuse me, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your glory, your, see your good order, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You may be seated. <clears throat> As part of his own ongoing ministry, the apologist, the great apologist, Francis Schaeffer, used to say that the church is the final apologetic. Francis Schaeffer died in 1984 at the age of 72, and in his lifetime he became known for his great defenses of scripture and his defenses for the existence of God. He remains well known today for his contributions to the discipline of apologetics. Apologetics is simply a defense. It's related to our word for apology. 
And literally, apologetics is defending the existence of God and defending the gospel. With books like The God Who Is There and Escape From Reason, and He Is There and He Is Not Silent, Schaefer not only offered a defense to unbelievers, but his words offered encouragement to believers to stand firm and defend their faith. With that in mind, then, when Schaefer referred to the church as the final apologetic, he was indicating that the church offers the final proof of the existence of God. When those around us doubt, they should be able to see the living God through the living church. If you read your chapter last week in the book that we distributed, it even talks about that, how the church should be the image of God. More than being the final apologetic, though, I would tell you that the church, for some, is the first apologetic. For so many people, their first look at Christ is a look at the body of Christ. Who the church is offers affirmation of who Christ is. And therefore, to make him known, Christ must be the head of the church, as we read in our previous text. In the verses that precede the text this morning that we read, Paul was, has not only placed Christ as the head of the church, but he goes on to explain the work of Christ, noting that he is a great reconciler, reconciling men with God. And then he talks about how those who once were alienated and hostile are now presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach. And then he concludes by saying, I am a servant of this message. As Christ is the great reconciler, Paul has a ministry of reconciliation to declare this truth to all people. Writing to the Corinthians, he expresses it with these words that we read this morning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of reconciliation is essentially the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The task that Christ has given every believer before his ascension was to proclaim his truth and to proclaim it to all people that they may be reconciled to God. First in conversion, that they would come to him in humble repentance and desirous of God's grace, which is available to all people, whether Jew or Gentile, but also in continuity, meaning that they would not become mere converts, but they would become followers of Christ, disciples, disciples, that they would indeed continue after him. And eventually, as Paul says in verse 28 of our text, that they would become mature, presented perfect. Paul's ministry of reconciliation then is placed before us in our text this morning. And it gives us a glimpse of his ministry. But not only does it do that, it exemplifies for us what it means to have a ministry of reconciliation for ourselves. What is the church and how does the church function? And so I want us to look at seven characteristics of a ministry of reconciliation. Just looking at the first two from today in our text. And so I want you to note first the suffering 
in verse 24. As he transitions from these previous verses, our text begins, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. A ministry of reconciliation is defined by a willingness to suffer. From the life of Christ in the book of Matthew, all the way through to the exile of John in the book of Revelation, God's word provides an abundant supply of examples of Christ's followers who not only suffered, but they suffered well. While being put to death, Stephen chose to utilize his final moments by preaching God's word. Peter is often regarded for his unwillingness to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. And yet in Scripture, in the New Testament at least, it is the Apostle Paul that we have the most information about. His biography consists of story after story in which he must flee in order to preserve his own life. But never is that his first option. He doesn't flee at the first sign of difficulty or the first sign of suffering or the first sign of danger. He always goes in and makes the most of the opportunity, spending as much time as he is able. His life story reads very much like the plot of an action movie in which we never know if he's going to make it out of alive until that very last instance when he's able to get out just in time. Suffering indeed is a mark of Paul's ministry. What it means to suffer is obscured by one of the most difficult texts in all of Colossians. When Paul writes this, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does Paul mean by that text? Is he trying to say that he's adding to the work of Christ? That by his suffering, he's adding to Christ's death and the sufficiency? If that were the case, we could easily say, no, he's contradicting Scripture. But Paul makes it clear in his own writings that he believes that Christ's work was sufficient in and of itself. He's just declared that in chapter 1 as he exalts Christ. And he, he explains that indeed Christ reconciled all things. So of course Paul believes that Christ is sufficient. And as we advance into chapter 2, you'll see that he reaffirms that. That it is by the work of Christ. And it needs nothing else and no work of any other person. Clarity, though, is added when we look at the word used for affliction here. When it says Christ affliction, never is that Greek word ever used to refer to the death of Christ or the sacrifice of Christ. And so it's clear then that Paul is not using it to say suffering adds to the death of Christ. Instead, we must understand two aspects of this text. The first is the background of Paul. As a Jew, Paul knew that the Jews held to this belief that in order for the end times to come, suffering had to occur. Suffering was a necessary precursor to it. Based on the understanding of the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament, that is a reasonable and correct view. But Paul knew something that the Jews didn't. Paul knew Christ. Suffering was not only a precursor to the end times, but we're told it's a precursor to the coming of Christ. In God's divine orchestration of all things, 
God the Father has appointed the moment of Christ's return. And in the time between Christ's death and Christ's return, we know that suffering will indeed take place. We don't know how much suffering, but certainly the Lord does know. Only he knows how many afflictions will make up that time. Jesus warned of this suffering, saying, They will hate you because they hate me. So it's not a surprise that there is suffering in between that time. We're told that that indeed will happen. The wrath and the anger and hatred the people felt for Christ was not appeased by the death of Christ. Had they, if they could, they would have sought more. The people wanted more, and their hatred was so intense that it was further manifested then by those who now follow Christ. That was true for Paul's day just as much as it is true for today. Thus Paul is simply saying, or simply suffering, to fill up the afflictions that will occur during that time of Christ, or before the return of Christ. Homer Kemp probably is the most straightforward, and he writes this about the verse. Far better is the view of the, these, that these sufferings are actually those which a hostile world imposed first on Christ and continues to afflict upon those who are identified with him. It is in this way that Paul is merely filling up the number of afflictions in God's predetermined plan. Even the suffering of Paul was part of that predetermined plan of God. Paul's sufferings are included in those afflictions that would take place before Christ's return. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is notable for its description of Paul's conversion. It is there when, shortly after the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7 of of Acts, that Paul is confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he is blinded and asking, who are you, Lord? And so Christ says, I am the one you are persecuting. And Paul is blinded, but Christ tells Paul to continue on to Damascus. And there he will receive instruction on what to do. In the meantime, while that's taking place, beginning in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9, we see that the Lord instructs Ananias to take Paul under his care. This is concerning for Ananias because he knows of the persecution that Paul has wrought against all people, especially those who are followers of Christ. And so not only is Ananias fearful, but he protests But then in response to all of that, the Lord reveals something special about Paul. In verse 15, he he explains that Paul has been chosen as an instrument for him. And then you read this in verse 16. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was chosen to be a sufferer for Christ. How ironic that Christ's confrontation of Paul begins with the question, why are you persecuting me, in verse 4? And now the one who has been doing all the persecuting will be the one who receives the persecution. Paul's purpose was to suffer. Specifically, he suffers on behalf of the church, is what our text says, for proclaiming the mystery 
of the gospel. Notice two aspects of Paul's suffering then. First, it is purposeful. Paul does not seek out some situations and specifically trying to become a self-made martyr. He's not trying to do anything either to usher in Christ's return by trying to fulfill those afflictions any faster. No, he suffers within the will of God. His sufferings are calculated for the sake of the gospel and God's glory. So that when he entered a city and preached, he didn't flee until he knew indeed that that was imminent and that there was no other option. And he seems to be okay with that. In the upcoming verses, we will see how Paul suffers by exhausting himself physically. It says in verses 28 and 29 of Colossians 1. Not only is Paul's suffering purposeful, though, but it also brings him joy. 2 Corinthians 6.10, he describes his own ministry as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That is how he begins our text here in verse 24. Now I rejoice. Remember, Paul writes those, with those words from prison. As he pens this letter, he is sitting in a jail cell, and he is penning those words and, and saying, I rejoice. If ever there was a time for sorrow, this would be it. But Paul rejoices. Because joy is not in temporal circumstances, but in eternal consequences. In the same way, any believer can maintain joy in any circumstance. Certainly Paul faced discouragement. We know that. We see that in his letters. But his joy always remained. It always remained constant. That's why he can write in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then to the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in, afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretext or in truth, Christ is in proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. As strange as it seems, there is great joy in suffering for our Savior, who suffered for us. Robert Gromacki writes of Paul, Christ suffered in death to save the church. And now Paul suffered in life to spare it. The history of the church is defined by suffering, beginning with individuals like Polycarp and Justin Martyr from the first century all the way through even into modern times. Suffering was the way of the Christian life. A few weeks ago during Sunday school, we watched a video on William Tyndale. In 1536, William Tyndale, known for his translation work, would be strangled at the stake for heresy. And if that wasn't enough, after he was strangled and put to death, then they burned his body. His crime was simply putting the word of God into the hands of people. Upon Tyndale's, Tyndale's death, John Rogers would overtake the work, and he would complete what is known as the Matthews Bible. Certainly he didn't want to publish it under his own name, so he chose Matthews. 
And using Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, John Rogers continued on with a translation of the Old Testament. And thus, he completed the entire Bible. But like Tyndale, John Rogers would also be martyred. But by being burned at the stake on February 4th, 1555, less than 20 years after Tyndale. On his way to death, Rogers walked along catching glimpses of the crowd. One of these glimpses included a look at his wife. And for the first and last time, Rogers would see his youngest child. The body of Christ is called upon to suffer for following Christ. To the Philippians, it is written, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in me, but also suffer for his sake. And Peter writes, For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Suffering is useful for the Christian life. In Philippians chapter 3, we see that suffering is used to bring people closer to God. In Matthew chapter 10, we're told that suffering gives us an assurance of our relationship with Christ. It assures us that indeed we belong to him. The Romans are told that their suffering is a cause for eternal reward when they get to heaven. And in some cases... Our suffering may even cause others to come to Christ. The question then is, do we suffer well? Does our suffering cause us to complain? Or does it cause us to be content? Are we like Paul, rejoicing at suffering? Suffering is simply a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and thus it is a part of the ministry for Christ. If that's not what any of us turned, signed up for, then now is the time to turn back. But if you are a true follower of Christ, then you can expect suffering, and suffering will define your life. Indeed, I think more and more suffering and oppression and persecution is coming, at least in the States. We had conversations about that on a Wednesday night. If something is worth living for, it is worth dying for. And if it is worth dying for, It is worth living for. I want you to note second, the stewardship found in verses 25 through 27. Note the change there, verses 25 through 27. Paul writes, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known to you how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second characteristic of ministry is stewardship of the church. Stewardship is the idea of effectively using our God-given resources for the glory of God. Acts 22.10 says that Paul was appointed to this role, a point that's affirmed in our text. He didn't go seeking this role out, but God gave it to him. God granted that he would become the steward. It's interesting to note that 
Paul never loses a passion to share the gospel with unbelievers. But he says here that his role is stewardship for the church. Certainly, he's always out there preaching the gospel. We see that. He enters a town and enters a synagogue and begins preaching. But here, he says he has stewardship for the church, for those who are believers. Sometimes stewards were free, and other times they were slaves. But regardless, their whole role was this concept or this idea of being a manager of a large household. One of the shows that we enjoy is called Downton Abbey. And if you know little about the show, it's off the air now, but it is set in England in the early 1900s. Specifically, it begins in 1912. And it is focused on two groups of people. First, it is focused on the people upstairs, the ladies and the lords, the dukes and duchesses, the residents of the large estate who are also the main employer for the village. But then downstairs, you have the life of the servants, the housemaids, the valets, the chauffeurs. And heading all of this up is the butler. In this case, a butler named Carson. Not only is he in charge of the staff, but his role is to oversee the house, ensuring that everything functions to the best of its ability at all times. When a broken boiler threatens the royal visit, all the pressure falls to him. When sickness hits the staff and house, he must make adjustments. He is the steward of the house, ensuring that everything is functioning to the best of its ability according to the resources of what they have. Well, that gives the idea of what a steward is. Paul's definition is more biblical. When we look at the pastoral epistles, we see the structure of the leadership of the church. And that includes elders and deacons and deaconesses. If you read our church constitution, you will notice that that is the structure of our church set forth. The word for stewardship in our text is derived from the word for deacon and deaconess. Deacons and deaconesses are simply stewards of the church according to the purposes that God has outlined for them. And so they care for the needs of the church in a way that is honoring and pleasing, using the resources and gifts that God has given them. In the same way, Paul here is acting as a steward. Paul's stewardship of the church is very specific, though. He notes that he cares for the church by making the word of God known, it says. He's revealing the mystery that's been hidden for the ages. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's this discussion of mysteries, and mysteries specifically that only those who have been enlightened even further by God can understand. If you remember the background for the book of Colossians, that's the same thing of the false teaching that is infiltrating this church. The false teachers are saying that you cannot have knowledge unless you reach this higher level of enlightenment. But Paul's already refuted that. In verse 9 and verse 12 of chapter 1, which we've already seen, Paul has already said that the message of God is accessible to anyone. But picking up on that terminology, he connects his stewardship of the church to those mysteries. As we see in Deuteronomy 29, 29, God doesn't have to reveal everything to everyone. 
But Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Thus affirming that God will reveal what is necessary for people. We know that there are a number of things that were not revealed in the Old Testament, but made clear in the New Testament. And so in verse 27 of our text, Paul clarifies what that mystery is by explaining that it is the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and I want to read to you the first nine verses. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to every, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Israel certainly knew that one day a Messiah would come and rescue them. Even more, they knew that that Messiah would come from within their own ranks. But it wasn't until Christ came that we understood that the Messiah's intentions was to rescue the Gentiles and save all people as well. The mark of ministry of reconciliation is the stewardship of God's church by declaring God's word. We're not revealing new mysteries because that which God has chosen to reveal is given to us in the scriptures. However, like Paul declared into the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27, we say, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. As believers, we use our gifts to empower the church, to be able to declare the entire counsel of God's word. If the word of God is sufficient for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, then it is God's word that we have a ministry of reconciliation for. It's no wonder that secular counseling doesn't seem to be working. Instead, they add more sessions, more pills, without, without ever reaching a conclusion. But it's because they don't have the stewardship of God's word. Because only God's word is sufficient. Therefore, our ministry must be based on God's word. When someone is rejoicing over something good and something grand that God has done, we preach the counsel of God's word, rejoicing from it. 
When someone is suffering, like we saw in verse 24, we preach the whole counsel of God's word because only it is sufficient. Sometimes I think we forget what we have in our hands, the revelation of God. I just shared with you about William Tyndale and John Rogers, these men who lost their lives for the sake of preserving God's word. And yet we treat the word carelessly and recklessly without consideration of what it took for God to preserve his word and what it cost. When we bring forth his word, we are revealing the mysteries of God that at one time were hidden, but are now revealed permanently in his word. So do we accurately teach the word of God? Do we accurately apply the word of God? The very word that men lost their lives to preserve, we cannot treat so cautiously or so recklessly. The church is the last apologetic, as Francis Schaeffer would say. It is by the church that people know Christ. And so that when they look at the church, they should be able to see who Christ is by seeing who he by seeing who we are in Christ. And so we see two characteristics. The first is suffering. Do we glorify God in our suffering? And the second is stewardship. Do we glorify God by stewarding the church and his word? Those are the first two characteristics of a ministry of reconciliation. I think I will close there and we can continue with the others next week. So let's pray. Our Father God, we are grateful for these lessons from Paul that we have. We're grateful that you used men to preserve your word, Lord, so that we can have it in our hands and that we may be able to learn what it is that you, you ask of us, Lord. Father, as we look at these words of Paul and, and see what it means to minister for you, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with this calling, but, Father, we would be encouraged by it, that we would see the joy it is in suffering for you because of the suffering of your Son, Lord. Father, may we be stewards of what you've given us, Lord. May we use it not for our own purposes and and plans, but Lord, may we use it for your honor and glory. And so, Father, may all that we do be guided by those truths. Be with us and, and, and help us to think more deeply about these truths and apply them as we move forward. We commit all these things to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.